I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. If you've ever stopped yourself from saying something, either in the real world or online, that you know is pretty innocuous, or at least it was until about five minutes ago, then you've experienced the chilling effect of a phenomenon known informally as cancel culture. And let's be extra clear. We're not talking about abhorrent beliefs. What we're often talking about is the ability, when discussing politics, culture, the news, to simply say, yes, and. So what happens when we stand up for the ability to think freely? And how can we improve our discourse so that all of us can feel comfortable speaking and changing our minds? Our guest this week has experience doing both. Angel Eduardo is a writer, musician, photographer, and graphic designer based in New York City. He has been published in Aereo Magazine, Mr. Bellar's Neighborhood, and The Caribbean Writer, among other journals. He is a staff writer for Idealist.org, as well as a freelance writer and graphic designer for the Richard Dawkins Foundation Center for Inquiry. You can see more of his work on his website, angeleduardo.com. Angel, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So we're going to need to lay a little groundwork here for the listener to kind of get us to the point where your essay is being retweeted by Richard Dawkins and Steven Pinker. So I'm going to need a little runway here, but hopefully it will be enlightening and set the scene for the rest of our talk. On July 7th, Harper's published, quote, a letter on justice and open debate, the main thrust of which was, to quote it directly, quote, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. Later, it wrote, censoriousness is spreading more widely in our culture, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty, end quote. It was signed by over 150 people, luminaries in the academic and literary spheres, including Noam Chomsky, J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, Gloria Steinem, Malcolm Gladwell, the list goes on. Then on July 18th, Aereo Magazine published your essay, quote, I'm a nobody, the Harper's letter was for me. And you wrote, quote, the signatories are doing this on behalf of those of us who aren't immune from cancellation. They're doing it for people like me who have way more to lose. I felt the chilling effects of this for most of my adult life, but I don't need to go very far back to illustrate them. After George Floyd was murdered, I knew what the response from many of our institutions and my social circles would be what the arguments would sound like, and how far from my own reasoning they would lie. As protests erupted and slogans were hurled and memes shared, I felt like an atheist at the table during grace. I couldn't go along with much of what I was seeing and hearing because it was wrong to me. I believe that Black Lives Matter, but I cannot support Black Lives Matter when so much of their rhetoric is confused, dishonest, or based on misinterpretations of the data. I reject and repudiate racism of any kind, but I can't in good conscience support the current strains of anti-racism because so many of their tenets and arguments are nonsensical, tautological, and even racist in themselves. I love, respect, and feel deep compassion for trans people and do not deny anyone's fundamental humanity or right to exist, but I cannot deny my own understanding of the science behind biological sex. Later you wrote, The trouble is that even saying this is dangerous. I have a great job and feel valuable at work for the first time in my life. What a terrible thing it would be to lose this opportunity over a tweet or an article that has been misinterpreted by strangers on the internet. It's perfectly understandable for me, and for many like me, to feel that the risk isn't worth it and remain silent. End quote. Okay, 
So, Angel, now that we've set the scene a bit, let's start here. If it's perfectly understandable to remain silent in the face of potential economic and societal risks, why did you decide to write the essay? That's a good question. Uh, compulsion, mainly. And uh, I think I, I mentioned it later on that I feel compelled to speak anyway because I feel like it's so important. And I know that even though it's understandable to keep quiet and try not to make any waves and just get by, it's ultimately a losing strategy. You're going to end up against the wall at some point. And so I'd rather end up against the wall now than after I've given up all my scruples and allowed you know, all these things that I see as wrong to silence me and to live with that feeling of being silenced and feeling of you know, like I've given up my spirit and I've given up my capacity for critical thinking and that I've given up on discourse. Uh, I would rather fight that fight and die there than give all that up and suffer this, you know, interminable torment of remaining quiet while I see madness happening around me and then having the madness come and get me anyway. To kind of, I suppose, rather than zoom out, let's zoom in. You're from New York, which I mentioned in the opening, but I'd love to learn a little more about you. And I think it would also provide context for our listener, right? Because I think in the way that a lot of luminaries signed that Harper's letter, I think one of the reasons that your letter connected with so many people is because you were speaking as, I suppose you could say, an ordinary Joe, right? So tell me how this sort of cancel culture, which is a term that I think isn't super illuminating, but I think gets it at least some bit of what we're discussing today. How has this manifested itself in your day-to-day life, right? How has it affected you as a guy who's living, working in New York City, not some famous, best-selling, you know, multi-millionaire children's author? (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, And I think that's the point, right, is what I was trying to say is that I'm not J.K. Rowling. I can't survive being torn to shreds online by by people because I don't have a billion dollars and I don't have clout and I haven't developed this fan base that will follow me no matter what I do or or what anyone says about me. But yeah, about me, I guess one thing that's critical is that I've seen all this stuff before. That's what I feel like. I feel like I've seen all this before when I was growing up. I feel like this is very reminiscent of that time in my life when I was questioning religion, when I was questioning the religion I was given, all the things that I was told about it, all the ways that people talked about it, and something didn't sit well with me even back then. You know, I, I hated going to church. You know, it something just didn't make sense to me. And every time I asked questions, I got unsatisfactory answers. And it took me a really long time to get to a point where I was comfortable saying, okay, I just don't believe this. This doesn't make any sense. And I'm not going to just tolerate you telling me crazy things. I'm going to question what you're saying. And if it doesn't make sense, I'm not going to adopt it or adhere to it. I guess, you know, I had been saying for a few years, you know, I guess it's hard to pinpoint when it would start, when it would have started, but I've been saying for many years, you know, I know a religion when I see one. And this is definitely that. The heresy, the original sin, you know, all these things. John McWhorter has talked about this at length. But yeah, I, I, had a, I had a similar feeling. And I think part of my motivation, part of my inability to keep quiet is just like, I know what this is, and it's not good. 
and I'm not going to let it happen, at least not to me. And I'm going to say something if I can. I'm not sure if that actually answers your question, but. It does provide context in terms of what kind of activated you or what set off your alarm bells in terms of being able to kind of spot what you would describe. And I actually would be charitable to this view because I also come from a religious background and can see kind of that original sin framework that, as you mentioned, John McWhorter discusses in several of his essays. And I believe he's actually writing an entire book about this very topic. But I kind of want to drill down a little bit to kind of circle back to my original question. I think you and I experienced the quote unquote kind of cancel culture in a religious and personal context when we were younger, right? I certainly did. The more I questioned my Christian faith as I was going through my late teens and early 20s, the more I felt isolated and ostracized from the very community from which I was seeking answers, right? And it was very personal. These were people I was dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So what I want to try and get at, I suppose, is how is our our modern religion, I guess as we would call it, affecting you, if at all, in your day-to-day personal life? Is it manifesting itself in personal interactions with friends or family? Is it manifesting itself at work? And obviously, I defer to you on how specific you want to get, (laughs) because I understand that you are just a regular guy. But I think that it will help provide kind of clarity and context because I think that we're not alone in in believing that there's something in the air. But I want to try and explore how what can feel oftentimes like a battle of elites at a cocktail party that neither of us would ever be invited to, how that can kind of manifest itself in the day-to-day lives of the average person, right? The the vast 99% of people who aren't writing for the Atlantic or who didn't go to, let's say, Yale or Cambridge or whatnot, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm trying to think now, like how to distill all of that because it's something that's kind of, it's just in the air and I feel it and see it. And it does kind of go back to the religion thing. Like I think in my day-to-day life, the one thing that frustrates me and troubles me is, is a kind of inability to communicate or an unwillingness to communicate on certain issues by the vast majority of people that I interact with. You know, I have very few friends who I can sit down and we can just talk about anything and there's no, no filtration is necessary. No punches need to be pulled, you know, like, because we both kind of just understand that we care about each other and this isn't a personal thing. We're just talking about ideas and we're hashing those ideas out. And I'm invigorated by that sort of conversation, by that sort of interaction. And it's so rare, and it's something that I'm really starved for all the time. And I see dogmatic thinking, to put it generally, I see dogmatic thinking as the major stumbling block, the major roadblock to having more of those conversations with more people. When it comes to you know this specific moment, when we're talking about really important things like race and policing and, you know, the systems that we have in place and whether they actually benefit us in the way that they should and all of these things that are really, really important. I think that the software that a lot of people are running is counterproductive to finding good answers to those problems, to reaching productive conclusions to those kinds of conversations. And so I find it incredibly frustrating. And that's my day-to-day life. You know, not everywhere, not all the time, but you know, People who are well-meaning, but I feel like they have the wrong idea or they've just been pulled in this weird direction. And I find it very difficult to have a conversation, to follow a thread all the way down to first principles. 
the bedrock of like, okay, well, this is what we're really talking about. I find myself getting lost with people a lot and misunderstanding and miscommunicating. And communication is so important to me because it's if I can name drop another guy, Sam Harris talks about this all the time. You know, we're on a kind of continuum between conversation and violence, you know, with conversation being the obvious better tool for making any kind of change in our society. I agree with that really deeply. And I feel that every impedance on the ability to communicate uh, just pushes us closer and closer to that violent other end of the spectrum. And we can see it now, you know, our inability to communicate is so much of why everything is happening the way it's happening right now, or, you know, right now in this time. That's my main motivation. That's my main sticking point. It's just, I, you know, I wrote that essay after going back and forth with people on Facebook and on Twitter when, you know, they were sharing the Harper's letter and having just the most bizarre, to me, the most bizarre interpretations of it, you know, and I mentioned a few of them in my response, but, you know, people were saying these these people just want to, they just want, you know, free reign to be racist or to be bigots. These people are, are, you know, they're just whining because finally someone is challenging them on their bullshit and I didn't see that at all. To go back for a second, um, I, I was kind of blindsided by the response, which I guess I shouldn't have been. I guess I should have expected it. But I read the Harper's letter. Uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams shared it on his Twitter. I read it. I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. And I retweeted it. And I didn't think about it again until you know the explosion happened where all of these people with all of their you know just incredibly bad takes, in my opinion, about it. And I couldn't believe that people couldn't see the point because, I mean, it's three paragraphs and I feel like the language is so clear and people's responses were just crazy to me. And so I, I found myself going back and forth with people, just trying to bring them back to the point. The point is really simple. It's like, hey, let's, you know, let's cut each other some slack. Let's be charitable. Let's not assume the absolute worst intentions in other people simply because they have a disagreement. Let's drill down on what's going on. Let's find out what's right or wrong. And then if we disagree, that's that's fine, you know, as long as there's that fundamental principle of respect and charity between everyone, which the letter specifically says is the most important thing. Yeah, that definitely speaks to the religious comparison we're talking about. I know that when I was religious, it it felt like a deep personal part of my identity, right? Like if I were to have described myself at 16, I could have said, you know, brown hair, brown eyes, about six foot tall, Christian. It would have been like a descriptor that would have been kind of inherent to who I was as a person. And when I lost my religion in my, I'd say early twenties, it really felt like a part of me died. Like I felt like I had to kind of reconstruct myself in the absence of what I felt was kind of a core leg of the stool, so to speak. And it feels like a lot of people carry around their political beliefs, and even perhaps even more than that, carry around a set of ideas that are related to their political beliefs, but it's a set of ideas that seems to govern how they, how they view and interpret events, how they view and interpret stimuli, how they view and interpret what people are saying, kind of what you're describing with the Harper's letter. Why do you feel that that is happening? What are your thoughts on why people are so internalizing their views, internalizing ideas, internalizing political beliefs 
as a core part of themselves. Have you noticed a similar trend and what do you think is causing it? Yeah, I definitely have. Um, a lot of my conclusions about things come from just my own observation of myself. I kind of accidentally developed a really strong bullshit detector and I couldn't even stop myself from um, turning it on myself. So, you know, what, what, you, what you were just describing to me immediately just flashed me back to high school and something that I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, you know, I, I was, I was what, what a lot of people in my circles called a music Nazi. By that, I mean, you know, if you weren't into the music that I liked, if you were into the music that was on MTV, then you were a buffoon. You were, you know, beneath contempt. I couldn't even talk to you. You were like, who are you? What kind of a human being doesn't appreciate, you know, the majesty of, of Led Zeppelin? You know what I mean? And uh, I realized that at a certain point when, you know, a Justin Timberlake song comes on the radio and, you know, it's got a good groove and he can sing. And, you know, as a musician, I'm, I'm picking up on these things where like, oh, this is, this is kind of good. Like, this is making me feel a kind of way. And I, I kind of like this. But I had to reject it consciously because of this persona that I had that I have decided to build around my musical taste, for example. You know, same thing with movies, same thing with, you know, any, any kind of taste that you can think of. And so I had to battle this within myself. Like, this pop song is pretty good. Like, I kind of like it, but it doesn't jibe with my whole thing of, you know, this is crap, it's, it's shallow music and whatever. And so I had to deal with that within myself. You know, but we're talking about, you know, a time where most people are struggling just to get through and, and, you know, growing up is hard and high school is hard. And it was very hard for me. I was a super sensitive kid and I was, I was shy and insecure. And, you know, we're talking about like, I've got a John Mayer DVD and I'm, I'm hiding it in my dresser drawer because I don't want anybody to see it. But I think, I think it comes from something similar to that. I think that we're all trying to build ourselves. We're trying to build an identity. and a lot of people find success with a kind of prepackaged identity. You know, like if you're going to be, you know, like high school stereotypes, if you're going to be the skater, like there's stuff to wear. There's stuff that you wear. There's music you listen to. There's food you eat. There's stuff you do on the weekends. It just kind of comes as one big package for you and you can adopt it. And then there you go. Boom. You have an identity. You have a, a sense of personhood. You have a peer group. You have things you say and you have things you hate. And I fell into that, but it, it just didn't work as well. In my case, I wasn't as good at it. I couldn't quite fit into the mold. And that forced me to kind of abandon it at some point because I realized it just doesn't work and I have to just be myself. But that's, that's so much more difficult to do. It's so much more difficult to build yourself up from nothing than to go to Hot Topic and get your, you know, you get your studs and you get your spikes and you get your platform shoes and you get your makeup and a couple of CDs and boom, you're a full person that people can recognize. Uh, I think that's what's happening now. I think I think that, you know, it's similar to a religion thing. Like you mentioned, you know, Christian was a thing that you listed as one of these, you know, pedigree items to your identity. And I think, you know, woke, I think anti-racist, I think Black Lives Matter. I think all of those things are being used by people in that way. Like here, I'm signaling something. I am a part of a certain group. And, you know, not to be too cynical about it. I don't, I don't mean to be cynical about it, but I think that when you can define yourself against something that you hate, it kind of takes the load off of you. It allows you to cut the corners around a little bit of doing the work on yourself because 
so much focus is on what you aren't rather than what you are. Yeah, it is much easier to articulate the things that one is against rather than being able to articulate one's own belief system. It's easier to say, oh, I hate Nazis. <laughs> Maybe not music Nazis, but it's much harder to articulate why free speech is a fundamental value that we should protect because that's, that's way messier. Like you were saying, it's so much easier to say all the things one is against you're not going to get too much pushback when you say that you hate racism, but it is way more fraught to try and delineate the differences between, let's say, the lowercase version of anti-racism, right? To be against racism, which I think most human beings would probably feel strongly about. And then to delineate that from anti-racism as currently defined amongst elite circles who are attempting to push a certain kind of belief structure that undergirds anti-racism. It's way harder to do that work, <laughs> as I have seen you attempt to do on Twitter. <laughs> and actually, speaking of that, before I get to this next question, how would you describe your ethnicity and how would you describe how you are perceived racially? And I'm only asking that because it does lead into my next question, which I think is important. Ah, interesting. Um, I don't want to appear to be like trying to be sneaky here, but I really don't think about it too often. You know, I am Hispanic is, I mean, that's what I grew up understanding is the label. I'm Dominican. My, my, both my parents are from the Dominican Republic. I was born here in America. So I'm Dominican American. That's, you know, that's an accurate label, I guess, but I don't, in my day-to-day -day life, I don't walk around saying these things or using these things or, or, or framing my, my worldview or anything that I do in this way. And there are, there are some pretty concrete reasons for it that are not just intellectual. But for the most part, it's just that I never, after a certain point in my life, I just realized this doesn't make any sense. Like, why does this matter? What I'm saying should matter. And I, I, I always felt weird if someone was treating me differently because of my identity. Um, or because of their perception of my identity. And I never liked that. I wanted my ideas to matter on their own merits. And I don't see other people that way. So now we're getting into a little bit of a the colorblind territory where people think that that's a ridiculous concept. And it isn't to me. I mean, I, I really do just see people. Of course, I notice, you know, the details about them. Of course, I notice, you know, their hair and their, their skin and whatever, you know, but um, it doesn't, make a difference in how I perceive them. It doesn't change anything. And again, that's, there are reasons for that in my, in my life experience that we can get into if you want. But yeah, generally speaking, I identify myself as a human being. And even that, like, I know that that sounds ridiculous to people. I just, I'm angel. That's me. I'm, a, I'm just a person. You know, I am who I am. And I don't see a lot of benefit to attaching these other labels to me because it, most of the time creates confusion. Yeah, I personally agree with your view. The reason I wanted to ask you that question is because it ties into something you were mentioning earlier, which is people take on these belief structures, which then creates a kind of, like, are, are you familiar with, I don't know if it's available in New York City, but I think it's available here in California. I could be wrong. Don't fact check me on this. But I know certain places when it comes to voting have the option of just checking R or D at the top. And then it's like a single party vote. 
So if you check Republican or if you check Democrat at the very top, it will automatically register that as, okay, this person wants to vote for every Democrat on the ticket, every judge who's Democrat, every local politician, every congresswoman, et cetera, whatever the D is on all these elected officials running, that's who this person is saying they want to vote for, right? It's basically just a simple little check that you can do that then just labels everything below it. And what I feel is so fraught about our current discussion around issues of race and identity, and the reason that I wanted to ask you that question is I follow you on Twitter, obviously, and I see some of the discussions that you get into with people. And you have an avatar that is rather ambiguous. (laughs) A, A person would not know necessarily what your ethnic background or quote unquote racial makeup is just by looking at your avatar, right? And you could forgive someone for looking at that avatar and thinking like, oh, it's like, yeah, it's just a a white guy, right? And that happens to you a lot, (laughs) I've noticed, is you'll write something in Twitter. You'll be in, in some kind of discussion with someone who is quote unquote woke or quote unquote anti racist or something. And you'll be articulating the views that you've articulated on this show so far that we should not be judging people or assuming their beliefs based on what their background is. And you seem to get a fair amount of comments, at least the few that I've seen, and I can only imagine there's more that I haven't seen, where someone will be like, oh, easy for the white guy to say. And I find that's rather dangerous, right? That we're ascribing universalist belief systems to racial categories, as if someone of your background, for instance, right, could never hold these views. Is this something that you're encountering often, not just online, but also in the real world where your views are being described as quote unquote white or quote unquote views you shouldn't be having? And is that something that you've always kind of had to deal with? Or is it something that you've seen accelerate recently? I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, it's a good question. It's interesting because um, that avatar that I have on my Twitter is, you know, my fiance, she designed it for me as a gift one year for my birthday. And I thought it was great. And I was like, oh, cool. All my logo problems are solved. I'm just going to use this. You know, I'm not a huge fan of uh, photographs of myself. And so I thought, this is great. I'm just going to use this for everything. And I never have to think about it again. It never occurred to me that it didn't look like me or that it didn't look like someone of my ethnicity. I just never thought about it. I just thought, yeah, that that's my face, but it's a cartoon version of it. And, you know, there's the fro and I don't know. I was a little bit surprised by it. And also, you know, I definitely did not take any kind of, um, I didn't make any conscious effort to hide my ethnicity. Um, You know, if you look at on my Twitter profile, the banner image is another photo of me. And you can clearly tell that I'm not a white dude there. And so, and that's still up there. It's interesting that people don't, don't even bother to click a couple of times just to make sure. And there's also, I mean, there's just my name. I mean, not many white guys I know are named Angel. It's usually a Spanish-speaking person. A few white girls I know are named Angel, which is interesting. Uh, and it got me into some shit when I was in elementary school. But uh, it's interesting to me, and I, I've been calling this lately, I've been calling it the one thought rule. When you have someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones, where she, you know, she is making the distinction between being ethnically black and politically black, as though there's a, there's a specific political stance or a specific uh, political thought process that is required for you to be included in this particular group. And yeah, I notice, I notice it all the time. And um, kind of touching on your previous question as well as this one, um, you know, in a thread 
talking to Thomas Chatterton Williams, I, I posted something about how I was signing up for some workshop um, through my job and they asked me my ethnicity. And it was the first time that I noticed that the, uh, when they asked your ethnicity, it wasn't a multiple choice. It wasn't like a, you know, click the bubble that best represents. It was just kind of a blank field. And so I just wrote human. I thought that was the most accurate. I really did. It's, it's a strange thing that's happening now. Like I always used to just answer that question with Hispanic, but then they kind of split it up where your race is Hispanic, but your ethnicity is something different or vice versa. And so now I'm totally confused on the census. I was totally confused about what to fill out. But anyway, I, I tweeted that and I said, you know, I was, I was very proud to write in human. And uh, someone, someone quote tweeted me just writing LOL as if, you know, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. And I found it really interesting what some of the responses were, where, you know, a very a visibly white woman, she tweeted as, as a response, you know, funny how we still know exactly what race this person is, which obviously the assumption is it must be, this must be a white guy. <laughs> and uh, someone else wrote something about how, you know, they work in psychology surveys and that researchers always take the response human as just another, another one for the white column because only white people ever write that. And yeah, so this, this sort of thing has been happening a lot more lately. People just assuming I'm white simply because of what I've said, because it's inconceivable to them that I might have a dissenting opinion on this while also having brown skin, which is crazy to me. You know, if it's not racist, it's certainly verging on racist, in my opinion, because you are essentializing someone. You're taking someone's phenotypic traits and you're and you're assuming what's going on inside their mind that's that's kind of crazy it's fascinating to me and it's also fascinating that it's you know quote unquote white people who are doing this the vast majority of the time you know you're not i'm not getting it from you know people that i that i know of that are you know black or brown or or whatever so it's just a very strange phenomenon here that's happening and i kind of grew up with it in my time, you know, coming up in, in middle school and high school, like if you weren't into hip hop music, you know, you lost some points. And I was into, not only was I not into hip hop music, but I wasn't even into the rock music of the day. I was listening to Queen when I was in middle school. You know, I was, I was running around singing We Are The Champions at the top of my lungs in the hallways. And people didn't even know what the hell that was, let alone, you know, what genre or anything like that. And I, I have been explicitly told, like, dude, you're you're Spanish. You should like rap. You know, I've literally been told that by people. I, I had been back then. And it just didn't make any sense. Um, I liked what I liked. And how does that make me less what I am? It's it's crazy to me. But that just goes to to show, I think, what we were talking about earlier about how this isn't really a thought process. This is more of an identity formation tool. It's something that people build themselves into, and they're kind of acting automatically. They're, they're just spitting things out that they know they're supposed to say. I don't think people are really thinking this through. I think that's right. And the kind of racial gatekeeping that can happen among minority communities is, unfortunately, a toxic holdover from the white wasp gatekeeping that happened in America for the majority of its history, right? That idea that there was a certain way 
that white people act in a certain way that white people think. And if you're not white, then that's not a thought that you can really hold or a way that you can act or a club you can join or a school you can attend. And I feel like we don't discuss enough, at least not in the mainstream, about how that way of thinking that was imposed by the racial majority, quote unquote, right, on racial minorities continues to echo within those same communities decades later within those communities. But that strain of thinking that is now in some of those communities, not all, but some of those communities was bestowed upon them by the very people who were oppressing them decades ago, telling them that there were only certain ways they could think, certain ways they could act. I find it rather interesting in kind of a horseshoe theory kind of way that we went from like 60 years ago, you know, some white woman would have been like, it's inconceivable to me that anyone of a certain skin color could think any other way from X, right? And now, 60 years later, it's on Twitter, it's inconceivable to me that anyone of a certain skin color would want to think any other way, which is what's getting thrown at you. They're asking these questions in a public forum in a way that says that they believe they're on the right side of history or they're in the majority way of thinking that this is the right thing to say. This is the anti-racist thing to say. It is an anti-racist thing for me, speaking as this (laughs) white lady, the anti-racist thing for me to say to a person who is not white, that their view is a quote unquote white view. Right. That is 100% horseshoe <laughs> from, you just, you just change a few words in that sentence. Right. You go to 1950 America, and that is just going to fit in at a cocktail party. Yeah. And the fact that these people can't or won't want to see it, or perhaps it goes back to what you were saying earlier, where people just ascribe to a certain set of beliefs that they're given from on high, right, from their moral leaders, and then they're told, thinking these things and saying these things about people of color, let's say, that's the right thing to do. But it's like a, it's an insidious form of bullying and an insidious form of racial gatekeeping that I can't imagine that these people understand what they're saying. Yeah. And I really don't think that they do. I really don't think that they've given it much thought. Um, And I've interacted with some of these people and I, I don't really try to do this, but I've, I have the sense, I don't do it consciously, but I have the sense that a lot of people humor me because of my ethnicity, um, when I challenge them about these sorts of things. So I know people, for example, on Facebook or something, friends of friends or whatever, people I used to work with or someone like that. And they, I see them posting things. And every once in a while, I, I, I take the bait and I pose some kind of question to their whatever woke thing that they wrote. And I think that it makes me slightly uncomfortable, this fact, because again, I, I just, I really feel like what should matter is the argument. But I really do think that they humor me longer than they would a white guy because I'm not a white guy. That allows me, though, to have longer conversations with them and get through to them to a certain level that I don't think they would permit a white guy to. And it just it reveals these very odd, these very odd flags to me of, okay, you're you're really not thinking about what you're saying. You're just kind of parroting things. And you have this convoluted worldview that Again, it's like a religion thing where, you know, there always seems to be some kind of logical out. If you corner a religious person with a logical argument, they jump to the metaphor. You know, oh no, it's it's not literal, it's metaphorical. It's no one says this is actually what's going on, but what it means is this. And you know, that's a that's a nice way to kind of slip out of 
trapping people when scripture doesn't make sense or the precepts of their religion don't make any sense or they can't be applied to the modern world. It's a similar thing. You know, I, I'm like, well, hold on a second, because here I am, I'm this brown guy, and I'm telling you that this doesn't make any sense or that this is actually, this is infantilizing. That's a lot of it for me is you're infantilizing me and people like me by voicing these things in the way that you're voicing them and acting like I have no agency, I have no ability to, you know, to be resilient, to tolerate the idiocy of some racist who says some stupid shit to me. You know, there, there's a weird kind of like paternalism and infantilization that I am really uncomfortable with. And I notice these things when I talk to them. And yeah, I don't, I just, I don't think that they're really thinking these things through because it's more of an automatic thing. It's just, look, these are the clothes that I'm wearing. And these are the things that people who wear these clothes say. And what you're doing right now is you're chipping away at that by asking me these thoughtful questions, by asking me to explain the logic of this. There's no logic here. This is, this is an emotional thing. This is a thing about being. You are attacking my personhood. The dynamics are strange because it's often, you know, we're talking about race and I'm supposed to be the oppressed one, but I'm the one challenging these people who are, who are you know, they themselves are, you know, they're constantly self-flagellating that they are the oppressors. But then here we are and, you know, I'm being kind of pushed out of the conversation. I'm being bullied out of speaking because I'm not towing the party line, which they have taken over. It's bizarre, you know, getting back to the thing that you said about how 50 years ago or whatever, you would have a, a white woman saying it's inconceivable for anyone who is not of this color to say or think of this thing. And here we are doing it again. You know, like that to me is the kind of systemic oppression that we should be mindful of. Like this is a mind virus that people had and an, a whole other group of people internalized and are now turning it against one another. You know, this, this idea that if a kid is caught with a book, He's going to get bullied by the kids who, you know, would rather have a basketball in their hand, you know, like, and there's nothing wrong with either of those things, but it's just this idea of, you know, intellectualism is white using, you know, using multisyllabic words is white. Reading is white. Asking questions in, in class and getting good grades is white. Since when? Why? Why on earth would that be a white thing? What does that mean? And what does that say about you and how you feel about your, you know, your quote unquote group and your community. What does that say about how you perceive yourself that you are prohibiting literacy and intellectuality and having a, a curious mindset? You're, you're excluding that from the characteristics that make up who you are. You're ceding all of that ground to quote unquote white people. That to me is insane. And I can't believe that people are willingly doing it now like they they're kind of consciously doing it they're they're you know like the difference between a closed eye and an opened eye purveyor of like woo woo stuff like psychics or something you know there are the psychics who think they they really are psychic and then there are the psychics who know they're not and are doing it anyway and you know there's a big difference there and it's it's weird that people are recognizing the history of being excluded from these things and are now self excluding it's it's just uh, I I don't understand it. It's very strange to me. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to minority communities that do this to themselves. In that, 
and I share your view that I, I wish that they wouldn't, but I'm sympathetic to why they do it, which is, especially if we're speaking of the black community and specifically American descendants of slaves, you know, for so long, they were told over and over by a majority white society that you're never going to do anything in education. You're not smart. Book learning isn't for you. We're going to give you crappy schools. We're going to segregate you over here and forget about you. And I can understand how a community would internalize those things over the course of decades or hundreds of years and begin to even think those poisonous thoughts, right? Well, maybe education isn't for me. Maybe education is a white thing. Maybe reading or writing or pursuing academic goals is a white thing because for so long, anytime someone from our quote unquote community would attempt to do that, we would get our head pushed underwater metaphorically or sometimes literally. Yeah. And so I'm sympathetic to to minority communities who have internalized that terrible idea. But what I'm not sympathetic to is decades later, white educators now saying literally, again, it's just boomerang. They're saying the exact same thing in a different way now. Now it's culturally responsive teaching, which basically says, oh, different races learn in different ways. And maybe this race over here won't be as receptive to the lessons that we're teaching to the white children and this, that, or the other way. Right. And again, what I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills when I read this stuff, because again, it is just a funhouse mirror image of the exact same garbage that was being shoved down the throats of minority communities for the vast majority of American history. It's that same poisonous logic. You know, again, I am sympathetic and I can, I can excuse it to an extent to the communities who have internalized it, right? I'm, I'm, genuinely empathetic to that. But I really don't understand when it comes from the quote unquote racial majority. And I feel like going on your one thought rule, there's this, uh, this saying that I've been, are you familiar with the book, how um, the Irish became white? Yeah, I am. I haven't read it, but I've heard about it. Yeah. It, it basically just kind of talks about how the Irish went from being seen as a distinctly different race <laughs> Some of the writings from the 19th century are just abhorrent. The drawings and the skull measurements, it's insane. But they went from being seen as this like non-white, you know, quote unquote, mongrel race to eventually over the course of several decades, they were seen eventually as white. And a lot of what underlied that was a virulent strain of anti-blackness that was in America at the time that kind of pitted newly immigrated Irish people and Irish Americans against the black underclass, but we eventually as a society, right, for either malicious reasons or for genuine understanding of the idea that our differences aren't actually that profound, we eventually allowed, quote unquote, the Irish to become white. And I feel like we have to allow immigrants of color to become Irish, right? Like in the same way that the Irish became white, we have to allow immigrants of color to become Irish in that we have to allow them for a path to blend into the wider fabric of society. What this ultimately means is that at some point we, we have to eliminate the artificial line of quote unquote white opinion versus quote unquote POC opinion in the same way that like we're not polling for Irish opinion anymore. We're not like breaking down polling data and being like, what do the Irish think? You know, like we have to go to Massachusetts and find out what is the Irish community saying? And people, I think, take this for granted. The fact that, that within the quote unquote, I don't even know, it feels weird even saying it, the quote unquote white community, as if there is one, it's actually, you know, dozens of different ethnicities. And we all just, we just combine them into a single opinion. And really, it seems like the healthiest way forward is to continue that process. Because 
when you live within a community, right? When you live within, like you were saying, the the, the Spanish community or the the Dominican community or the Latino community or the black community, when you're in that community, you understand that there's an intense amount of heterodox opinions within that community. It's only when you're outside of it that it looks like it's all the same. I'm trying to figure out a way that we can actually move towards that future. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I don't know that I would frame it in that way. I think we talked about this a little bit before um, in our Twitter exchange, but I, I don't know if I would frame it in the way of, you know, like we need to make a uh, the same way that the Irish became white, we need to make people of color white. Uh, I just think there's too much of a can of worms with those terms at this point. But I, but I take your meaning. Um, and what I mean by that is, is white only in the idea that like I, as a guy walking down the street who I suppose would pass as white, when someone looks at me, they can't assume what I'm thinking, right? They would not dare to assume whether I'm Republican or Democrat, what my feelings on abortion might be, what my feelings on gun rights might be. And that, that is a certain kind of privilege, you could say. Sure. And so that same privilege is not applied to other communities. And that should be something that we aspire for in the same way that no one looks at an Irish American today and just instantly assumes what they think. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm with you absolutely on the meaning there. I would frame it differently just to avoid the whole white thing because it's just too many problems arise when you start using that language. You reminded me actually of a cartoon, I think it's a New Yorker cartoon that Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about a lot, where there's three scientists at a table, I think, and one of them is black and the other two are, are the other two or three are white. And there's, you know, thought bubbles above all their heads. And the white people's thought bubbles are like, I wonder what he thinks about affirmative action. I wonder what he thinks about OJ at the time was the relevant thing. I guess it would be now like Black Lives Matter. Um, and the other person was, I wonder what he thinks about some other, you know, black centric talking point. That, you know, there were these, these three things, you know, setting up that pattern. And then when you see the, the black scientist, the thought bubble over his head is just equations and crazy formulas going on. And he's not thinking about any of that stuff. He's thinking about science. And I think that's getting at what you're talking about. You know, I think, you know, the, these spats that I have on Twitter with people where they just assume I'm white because I said something um, that's heterodox, which to me is crazy. It's, I'm just trying to be sensible. It's, it's that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think we want to get to a place where we recognize that you have to treat each individual as an individual and you really cannot make a lot of assumptions. You know, assumptions are great for comedy, you know, because we do have general things in common and that's what, that's why we laugh at, you know, Chris Rock jokes and things like that. But, you know, when you really get down to it, like there's no reason for you to think, you know, how someone feels about abortion until you ask them, no matter what color their skin is, no matter what group they're in. To me, that's just crazy. And you're, you're minimizing the vastness of the human mind when you do that. And you're making conversation much more difficult. You know, and I guess, you know, the search for simplicity in, in these kinds of things, you know, when you can say like, oh, well, we've got the black vote. What the hell does that mean? What is the black vote? I've seen you know, tons of black people disagreeing on these things that are supposedly, they're, they're supposedly like dead and done, all these topics. But they're, here they are hashing these things out saying, I don't agree with this. I wish we would do it this way. Fundamentally for me, I think that the whole concept of grouping people by their race just makes no sense because there's so much variety. There's so much difference of opinion, of, of perspective. Even, even using the terms liberal and conservative just are meaningless to me. 
you know, I, I guess there's there's gonna come a point where you need to have some sort of categorization in order to, you know, do statistics and things like that. But when it comes to like interacting with human beings, you and another human just talking things out, I don't think those things do any good at all. I think they do a lot of harm in both directions, you know, where you have people who are a part of a certain group just assimilating into that group despite all the cognitive dissonance that's going on in their head. You know, maybe they don't agree with this. Maybe they don't agree with this particular idea that is that is being espoused by their quote-unquote group. And then outside of that, having people see you as a member of this group and assuming they know what's going on in your head, that's limiting. It's limiting to the discourse. It's limiting to human relationships. It causes so many problems. I mean, I mean, we, we, we talk all the time about, about you know, these microaggressions where someone assumes that because of your ethnicity, you are of a certain socioeconomic status or these little things. But it's totally okay to assume huge and consequential political ideas based on the color of someone's skin. Like, that's totally fine. It's almost insulting to people if you don't do it. I'm black. How could you? think that I'm not for this. You know, it's it's weird because it's kind of everyone playing into it. You know, rather than it being imposed on one side from, you know, the quote-unquote oppressor class, it is now kind of a shared delusion by everyone. Everyone is just kind of saying, "Yeah, this is how everything works." You know, I just can't get behind that. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. I think that categorization is something we're never going to be able to move past just because I think that that's how our brains are wired evolutionarily. But I think that a healthier way, I guess, to categorize ourselves into teams or into groups would just be the way that we do sports. You should be able to take the jersey and put it on or take it off and put on another one. And then once you put that jersey on, sure, if someone wants to assume a set of beliefs or a set of opinions that you might have because they see that you're wearing a jersey, then I think that that's okay. The problem with something like a racial or ethnic categorization in terms of systems of belief is that you can't take that jersey off. And I think that that's why that's so, to use an overused word, problematic, right? Because when you apply opinions or belief systems to people who are wearing jerseys they were born into, it can never remove. You're really limiting people and you're dehumanizing them. Now, if we get to a place, which I hope we can, where we can start ascribing opinions and views based on the quote-unquote jersey you're wearing, the moniker that you've, you've taken on, the label that you've put on your shirt, I think that's totally fine. But we seem so far away from that, at least when it comes to having interracial discussions, right? Again, and I think that that's a privilege that is only really allowed for the white quote-unquote majority, right? That inability for me to assume exactly what you think. And I think if we can get to a place where, yeah, everyone can kind of just be neutral and be like, I actually have, I have no idea what Angel's thinking right now. And then you put a shirt on, <laughs> the metaphorical shirt. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. So that's, that's how he feels about guns. Right. You know, but we're, we're not there yet. Yeah. I think, I think it's just, um, I'm not sure that I would find that helpful either because it's just, we have this tendency, you know, like people can label themselves Democrat, but now, I mean, think about that. Like what, what does that exactly mean? Right. There are people who lump themselves in with this group and they don't necessarily share all those points of view. And then you get a ton of confusion as a result. So, you know, there are people running around with the same jersey on, 
but they they don't they actually don't agree as much as they think they do on fundamental things and they just don't realize it because they think everyone else thinks what they think because they're wearing the same jersey i think i just have an aversion to adhering to any kind of group or putting on any kind of jersey i i just feel like i'm not the kind of guy who puts on jerseys i'm not the kind of guy who uh who joins groups i think it that comes from my personal experience of just recognizing that no matter what group i tried to jump into it didn't quite fit it didn't quite work and there's nothing special about me you know there's nothing unique about me or my brain or my experience that makes me different from anybody else in this regard i don't think i don't think i'm some oddball i think that it's just that most people probably ignore the things that don't quite work and i didn't um, and so I find myself saying like, yeah, you know, I kind of like your team. I agree with these things about your team. I think your team is cool. I like that you have a team. I don't want to put the jersey on though, because I don't like this stuff. And I feel like, I feel like it would be a problem if anybody saw me with this jersey on and thought that I agreed with that stuff when I don't. It's just going to create another issue. But I, you know, I do take your point about categorization is just going to have to happen at some point. But I think we can be smarter about it, and I think we can be more fluid about it. Kind of like what you mean with the jerseys, but in my experience, like putting on a jersey, you have a tendency to uh, get in line and to follow and to be less likely to go against your group. And so I, I just see that as a problem. I see that as, you know, here we are and we're interacting, but some people are on autopilot and some of those people who are on autopilot might have had a great idea if they weren't stuck in whatever team they had chosen to be in. Oh, trust me, on a personal level, you, you and I are, are very much aligned. I, one of the reasons that I had to give up my faith eventually was, imagine there's like a list of precepts that one must believe in order to call themselves, at least this is how I looked at it, in order to call themselves a Christian. And you know, as this list started getting shorter and shorter, as I started kind of carving out things, well, I don't really believe in that, and I don't really agree with this, and da da da. It got to the point after several years where I'm looking at this long list of things that I felt I needed to believe, you know, if the Bible is true, let's say, and the list was, you know, 80% crossed out. I felt at a certain point, how can I wear this jersey, right? And I'm very much in your camp in terms of you know, if we lived in an ideal paradise of a society, no one would wear jerseys and everyone could just be viewed completely as an individual. But to go back to what you were saying earlier, I think that there's I think the vast majority of people, for whatever reason, like to wear jerseys. And hopefully, in this ideal <laughs> jersey-laden society that I have constructed in my head, we'd also have room for people who just don't like sports, you know, who, who are going to walk down the street and not wear a jersey. But before we, we start wrapping up the conversation, and to kind of bring us back to the initial conversation around cancel culture, I wanted to put something to you that I feel is a rather interesting counterpoint that I find actually kind of persuasive, and that is that cancel culture has always been around, and that the thoughts and the views that will get one canceled are simply different today. And that if you look in the history of the United States, whether it's around black activism, civil rights, the woman's vote, views around any hot button topic, right? Whether it's on the left or the right, that a certain kind of cancel culture the views that you couldn't say for fear of losing your job, for fear of even potentially political retribution, for fear of being excommunicated from your family, for loving the wrong person, 
that that cancel culture, as we call it today, has always been with us. And I think that some of the reasons that people are pushing back against like the Harper's letter, um, at least the ones who are pushing back in good faith, would say, this has always been around. And you, not you as an angel, but you, the person who you know, signed this Harper's letter or the person who was complaining in general about cancel culture, you are just upset about it now because it's applying to you rather than, again, the black civil rights activists who were being canceled in the public square in the 1950s and 60s, or the women's rights activists who were being canceled in the early 20th century, or again, in the 50s and 60s when they wanted to expand their way of life beyond the domestic sphere. And so one what do you think about that in terms of cancel culture kind of being with us throughout human society, not just in America forever? And two, that the cancel culture that some people are experiencing today is rather mild in comparison to the cancel culture that certain racial or gender activists experienced in the past. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I've heard that. And I think it's, you know, I haven't given it a ton of thought, but I do think it's true. Um, that some form of it has always existed. I don't think it's a new phenomenon, for sure. I mean, heresy is heresy. You know, that's been around since forever. And the consequences of heresy have been around forever, and they've certainly been far, far, far more extreme in the past. I just don't see that as any reason to dismiss the issue at hand. I don't know if it matters that it's been around forever and that, you know, it used to be worse you know uh to kind of flip the argument i mean one of the things that i always say and um that a lot of people talk about you know someone like steven pinker talks about is that you know this is the best time to ever have been alive is right now you know the best time to ever live is right now we are at the pinnacle of you know so many objective measures of of human flourishing compared to where we've been in the past you know and people don't like that because they think that it necessarily dismisses the suffering of people that are, that's happening right now, the problems that we have right now that we still have to solve, the, the very thin line between you know the stasis that we have and complete catastrophe that could happen at any moment. I don't think that that rebuttal makes any sense. I think that, yes, there are problems. Um, we can acknowledge that we have plenty of things to deal with and to solve and plenty of things to be worried about very worried about and certainly nothing is perfect but we can also acknowledge progress right so conversely we can acknowledge that uh you know losing your job is not as bad as getting set on fire but losing your job still kind of sucks you know especially if it's you know a, it's because of a tweet that you know maybe you you were joking and someone misinterpreted it or purposely misframed it in order to come at you, you know, that, that still sucks. And we don't have to live that way. We don't have to accept that as the status quo. And if there's one thing that's different about all of that than right now, I guess I would say that, you know, there, there are certain fundamental principles that are required for not just civil discourse, but for a society to function. And the chilling effect of what people call cancel culture. I, I try not to use that term because, as usual, terms fluctuate and the meaning fluctuates and people have different definitions. But the chilling effect of something like this, where if you say the wrong thing, you will not only lose your job, you will be you know, tarred and feathered virtually on the internet. 
people will consider you a pariah. It, it will be very difficult for you to get back on your feet if you're not someone like J.K. Rowling. You know, there are people we've never heard of. Their lives are just destroyed, and they must have some semblance of it back, but nowhere near the same. But what we're doing is we're eroding civil discourse. We're making it difficult for people to have conversations about really important things, and we're seeding the floor to anyone who is uh, zealous enough to be a bully, whereas someone like me might not want to, I have no desire to bully anyone into thinking the way that I think. I really want to talk to people. I really want to find out if I'm wrong, and I want to be explained why I'm wrong, but treated as a person, treated as a human being who is deserving of respect and dignity, but whose ideas are completely wrong and the ideas can get smashed to bits. That's fine. But I think that what's happening right now is it's a much wider thing that's happening because we're chipping away at this cornerstone of our society, which is our ability to communicate. The only reason we're doing this right now, I mean, you and I are having this conversation you know, on opposite coasts of this giant continent, and we're using technology that was created to allow us to do this. And even the language we're speaking that we're both of us are understanding, like all of this comes from this ability for us to group together, to socialize, to communicate with one another and to achieve goals together. Like, so this society that we have, it's built upon this one single thing. And the idea that someone is going to keep their mouth shut about an idea, keep their mouth shut about a sentiment that they have, oh, I don't agree with this. I'm just going to, I'm getting dragged along on this and I don't agree. That's bad. Sure, you're going to silence racists, maybe. And sure, you're going to silence hate speak from people who are truly hateful. You know, you might make them think twice. You might, you might frighten them into silence and their, you know, their, their horrible words are not out in the ether for others to suffer. But I think there's a ton of collateral damage there. I think you're also silencing people who are truly kind and compassionate and they don't have the disposition to push themselves past these restrictions and these restraints. And they have plenty to contribute to the world and they could have great ideas and they could have great reasons for doing things or great reasons for, for not doing things, for doing things differently, that they could contribute to the discourse. But we won't get to hear them because they're so terrified that if one word is out of place, they can get completely ravaged by people. I, I just think about 10 moves from now. You know, I think part of it is short-sightedness on the part of the people who espouse this sort of thing. You know, they think, well, that racist guy in my office, he's going to think twice about saying, you know, the shitty things that he wants to say. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, that's a, that's a legitimate proximate cause that, that's plausible. But there's 10 moves from now, there's somebody else who saw what happened to this person and is afraid that even though they don't think it's racist, what they're going to say, it might be perceived that way. And that's all it takes. I think it's just, there's just no reason to accept that as the reality we have to live in. There are better ways to do this. There are easier ways to do this. <laughs> there are ways to do this that doesn't require so much anger and animosity. You know, we can be more charitable. We can be more compassionate with one another. Life is hard. Things are hard. Society is hard to build and to maintain. We're not that old of a species. You know, we are, as an American society, you know, we're not that old. This is a real experiment that is still being played out in real time. And the experiment can go haywire. And I think it's important for us to keep in mind the most important building blocks 
to these structures that we have in place. And I think the ability to reach across any kind of differences that we have and just talk to each other like human beings and accept that we're all just trying to do what we think is right, even if we're wrong. Extending compassion to people, I think, is just so critical. And I think it's lacking in a lot of this stuff, even though it's dressed in compassion for one group. It comes from this place of, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to protect this group. And in doing so, I am going to completely obliterate this other group. I just think that's a messy way to do it. And it doesn't have to be that way. It sounds like from a first principles perspective, you're arguing for transcendence, that you acknowledge that while human history is fraught with various levels, <laughs> violent or nonviolent, of cancellation, what you're saying is that does not mean that we have to carry that burden forward into the future. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of things in our, in our history, in our past that we, we did and we've done and, you know, hey, we did it forever. Why wouldn't we just keep doing it? That would not work as any kind of justification for many, many, many things that are in our nature and that people might justify that way as, as being natural or being, you know, perennial. No one would accept that. No one would say, oh, well, yeah, I guess we've been, do we've been doing this for thousands of years. I guess we should just keep doing it. That's crazy. No one accepts that. And uh, cancel culture should be no different. You know, yes, sure, we've done it. It's been around. And if anything, that should instruct us on how damaging it can be, you know, witch trials and the Red Scare and all kinds of crazy stuff like that, even like the satanic panic, like all this madness. You know, it's like maybe we should learn from these moments where terrible things happened and they didn't need to happen that way. We, in hindsight, can look and say, yeah, that could have been handled better. Why don't we handle things now the way that they should have handled what happened then? I wholeheartedly agree. I am very glad to be driving a car and not riding a horse. So I'm glad that we didn't keep doing that, even though that's what we'd always done. Before we get to the final question, what, if any, are some books, articles, videos, things you've been reading, watching that have changed the way that you've been thinking or just sources that you'd like to share with the listeners? Huh, good question. I have a, a list of things that I, I find that I'm always recommending to people. I think, the, I think the number one book that I would recommend to everyone, read it right now. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death, and it's by Neil Postman. Um, I read it in college, and it blew my mind. I couldn't believe how accurate it was. And you know, I read it when I was 20, I guess, but it was published the year I was born. It was published in 1985. And it could have been written last week. When I'm telling you how prescient it is, you won't believe it. The basic gist of it is that the transition from uh, the written word to television as our primary source of media and our primary source of news has dramatically shifted our discourse to one that is more focused on entertainment than anything else. Because television by nature is entertainment focused. And so you can have educational programming, but it's still, the education is going to take a backseat to the entertainment factor. And even news is going to have that quality infused into it. And I think, you know, we're living in the results of that. You know, the 24-hour news cycle, the way that presidential debates, whereas, you know, they used to be events that you would go to and sit there for hours. And I remember reading, it might be actually in this book, it's been a little while, but I remember reading, you know, a debate between Lincoln and someone else, and neither of them were actually even running for office at the time. 
they were just touring and having these debates and people would go see them. And the responses would take so long that uh, there was one time where Lincoln's opponent had a very long, you know, maybe hour and a half, two hour, three hour um, speech about his positions. And Lincoln actually suggested that everyone break for dinner and come back to hear his response because he didn't want to make anyone sit there starving through his response. And people actually did this. Whereas now you have, you know, Mr. President, uh, what is your plan for foreign policy? You have 60 seconds right before we sell you some soap. So I would highly recommend that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. The autobiography of Malcolm X is another one that really affected me profoundly. I've read many, many times. And people are familiar with his most vociferous period, you know, when he was uh, in the Nation of Islam and he was very, you know, militant and pretty much anti-white. But a lot of people don't know about what happened to him after that. They don't know a lot about what was going on in his head in the last couple of years of his life as he was shifting again into this different perspective. And that perspective is so important. And I, f- I feel like more people should know about it. So I, I would probably start people on that. And also just for a little bit of hopefulness in this craziness, you know, Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, fantastic book that really uh, lends some perspective that is much needed. If you only are on Twitter and if you only consume the, the, the news that you're given, you can have a very bleak view of the way the world is and this will help kind of offset that a little bit. It's a proof that the Enlightenment values that we instilled in our nation's founding and you know, in the Western world at large have reaped many, many benefits and that we are experiencing those benefits even as we are despairing for the end of the world. So a little bit of optimism. He doesn't really like to use the word optimism because it sounds like a bias. And I think he's right, but it will lift your spirits a bit if you accept it. I think it can be very easy with our modern news discourse to forget about all the progress, the amazing progress that we've made in the world and as a society, even within the last 10 to 20 years. Coleman Hughes writes a lot about that topic. And if all you do is look at your Facebook feed or look at CNN or another mainstream news source, you can come away with the idea that the world is just constantly on fire and nothing is getting better. So I think that that's a great recommendation. All of those books are, I think, wonderful recommendations that anyone would be better off having read. To take us to our final question, we are limited as individuals, I think, in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy, uh, especially on Twitter, I think. (laughs) So even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every group of people all the time. It's literally impossible. So. Is there someone, a group of people, abstract or personal to you in your life or the world at large that you would like to take a moment and offer more empathy to? <laughs> this, might, this might be upsetting to people, but uh, I've been thinking about this in the last 48 hours. Um, I have a lot of compassion for Donald Trump, and I feel that everyone else should too. I should clarify that, I guess, but I... I find it very difficult to think of a more odious human being. He is not someone that I like. He is not someone that I... He's not someone who has very many qualities that I would aspire to or admire. He is pretty objectively terrible in many, many ways. But I feel a deep sense of compassion for him and for people like him, 
people who people who like him also. And that comes from just a basic understanding for me of how we come to be in this world. I mean, Donald J. Trump was once a baby, and that baby was born into a world where he didn't pick his genes, he didn't pick his psychology, he didn't pick his brain, he didn't pick his parents, he didn't pick the environment in which he was brought up, he was raised, he didn't pick his education, he didn't pick the temperament that would allow him to absorb an education, whether it did or it didn't. And so he is the result of a chain of causes that are outside of his control, just like all of us are. And in so many ways, he is profoundly unlucky to be who he is. I mean, I wouldn't trade lives with him, even you know before the last two days when he was diagnosed with COVID. I wouldn't have traded lives with him for anything, because it seems like such a miserable existence. You know, his just his narcissism, his his obvious neediness, his need for attention. There must be this just black hole in his belly. And it must be awful. I, I feel terrible for him in that way. I do not wish ill upon him. I have a deep sense of compassion for him because in, in a sense I recognize that he is just a victim of circumstances, you know, and even his decisions aren't really his decision. Because the decisions that occur to him to decide just kind of appear in his brain. And it's just his programming, you know? Um, and that can sound kind of that can sound kind of bad defeatist for people. It could sound kind of fatalist. Um, but I don't see it that way. It just kind of eliminates for me the justification for and and reasoning behind hating anybody. I don't hate him. I, I really don't like him. <laughs> and I don't like his behavior. I don't like things he says. I don't like the things he does. But hating him just kind of implies that he could be, he could wake up tomorrow and be someone else. And I just know that that's not true. And, you know, now, you know, he's, he's sick and we don't know exactly what his state is. And it could be much, much worse than they're letting on. And, you know, I, I don't wish death upon anyone. I certainly didn't vote for him and would not vote for him. But, as a human being, he is suffering, and I can feel that. And that might be hard for some people, which I, I understand, but I, I would appeal to everyone's better angels, if you'll pardon the pun, to kind of see that in themselves. You know, I mean, here, here I am, I'm, I'm an atheist telling people to love your enemies. But it's because that principle, that fundamental principle is so important. And, you know, if you can feel compassion for him, then I think you're in a pretty good place. If you can do that, you'll be much more likely to be more compassionate with, you know, the guy who cuts you off in traffic. Angel, thanks so much for joining us today. I look forward to reading more of your essays, and I really appreciate the time you took to join us in conversation. Great. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. 